Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. We're broadcasting live following the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. We're taking live questions here from our audience. We've got a socially distanced audience here that's uh, participating live, but we've got a lot of people live streaming as well through our Soybean Agronomy Workshop today. We've got more workshops actually coming up later this winter. Uh, Our next Ag PhD Workshop will be our Ag PhD Tiling Clinic coming up March 16th. For more details on that, if you would like to, uh, to check that out, you sure can. Go to agphd.com. Right with our soybean agronomy workshop today, we focused on soybeans to talk a little bit about some other things going on with fertility and so forth, but mostly on soybeans today. And a lot of the discussion ended up being around some of these disease pieces. We talked about sclerotinia white mold quite a bit with a concern brand of, hey, in 2017, we had a white mold year. In 2019, we had a white mold year, and now here we are in 2021. A lot of the corn-soybean rotation guys going right back on that white mold ground, so that could be a concern again this year and something you definitely want to plan for. Uh, For our audience here, if you have a question, just raise your hand, and uh, John in the orange shirt over there or Glenn over here in the black pullover will will come around and and take your question. Uh, I see one in the back over here. We can get started with that in just a second. If you would, just say your first name and where you're from. That'd be great. Yep, and just the state where you're from is good enough. That'll be fine. Uh, Rich from uh, Minnesota. Yep. Have you seen any less white mold in no-till soybeans in the corn stubble as opposed to conventional till? You know, that's a great question. So we, we talk a lot about we, the good thing about uh, this day and age, Brian, and I got to know both of our grandpas really well. They were both farmers and their strategy. If I have a disease problem or an issue in my fields, get the plow out. Let's bury it down about 12 inches and hopefully we won't have to see it again. And so tillage was used to try to get rid of some of those problems. But the challenge with white mold is that tillage could also bring it back up and those sclerotia stay alive for quite a while. Yeah, but plowing would be good, okay? If you were going to bury it, that's good. We do see a little more white mold when there is light tillage. And almost everybody anymore, it seems like, is doing white t- light tillage. So, uh, yes, I would say a little bit less issue with no-till well, if you than think about it, If you leave that sclerotia on the surface till. of the soil, you've got all the weathering that's going to happen over two years before you get back to raising soybeans again in a corn soybean rotation or three years in a three crop rotation that's fantastic for breaking a lot of that sclerotia down so yeah definitely i would i would say you're right about that reduced uh no-till would be better uh yeah the deep tillage would probably be the next and then the minimum till would probably be the worst system for i don't yeah and i'd almost think that really deep till if it was mow board plow that would be the very best i think that'd be better no-till but almost nobody's gonna do it so (laughs) All right, go ahead. We got another question. Yeah, Jerry from South Dakota. Just question. You talked about using some different water treatments earlier in the yeah. in the session, and one thing that wasn't mentioned was water temperature. Yep. Um, would you comment about using a warmer water? Or, you know, a lot of times we just get it right out of the hydrant, and yep. it's really cold. It is. So tell me your thoughts there. Well, my number one thought is stuff doesn't mix as well or as easily when the water's cold. So a lot of times what we encourage people to do is put it in a tank and then you've got it out of the ground and then a lot of times the sun can start warming that up and then typically we do see 
easier mixing that way. Now, I don't know in terms, Darren, of weed control, insect control, disease control. I've never seen a study showing colder water was worse than warmer water. It's more of a mixing issue than anything. Yeah, I think, think it's mostly the mixing. And, yeah. and, you know, same goes for fertilizer. When we're in the spring and yep. we're, we're out early, starter fertilizer is really cold. And it's tough to get things to mix with that. But if things are warm, they mix a lot better. So, yeah, that, that is another factor, no doubt about it. And if you've got a heated shop and you can pull things inside in the night, that's really nice if you're starting out at 60 or 70 degrees when you're bringing stuff out. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. We, we're getting questions online, too. So we'll get to those in a little bit. We want to take our live questions first or our in-person questions first. Mark from South Dakota had a question. Is there a corn, like a one pass corn program that you would uh, recommend? Uh, what, what are we after? What are we trying to kill? Grass is really not that big of a situation, but, um, I was afraid you were going to say that. Go ahead. <laughs> but water hemp, um, some kosher mare's tail. Well, each one of those is a little bit different. Now, mare's yeah. tail and kosher in this geography are typically starting very early in the season. Right. And we've got a better shot at those than we do at controlling the water hemp. That new water hemp will pop up even later on in the season. So uh, for, for me, I'd say no to the water hemp. But if it was kosher and mare's tail, yes. Uh, it's going to take a combo because you're going to have to burn down what's up and then also have some residual because those are already going to be up. So, yeah, you could do it uh, with, with those two, but not all three because the water hemp's going to be too tough. Yeah, if I was going to use something, it would probably be Verdict. You've got Outlook and Sharpen in there, and if you said, well, I'm only going to do one pass, then I'd throw $3 worth of HPPD. You could throw a full rate of HPPD along with it. So now you've got three modes of action, all effective on the weeds that you're talking about. Uh, well, the Group 15 isn't very good on mare's tail. But anyway, uh, you, you've got something in there. And then to burn that mare's tail down, throw some crop oil along with it. So if it was Verdict plus an HPPD and some crop oil, you're in pretty good shape. And that will give you residual for quite a while on water hemp. But to Darren's point, unless you get great crop canopy early in the season, there would probably be a few water hemp plants coming up a little bit later. So what we usually recommend instead is we might, let's say, start with that Verdict and crop oil down and then we'll just follow with like HPPD and atrazine post-emerge. HPPD and atrazine post-emerge, you're only going to spend four or five bucks. So it's not much. It's just, you got to make another pass. So that's, that's what I would do if I had that weed spectrum. Yeah. The other thing that I'd say too, is we see a lot of those post-emerge apps just happening super late. And I, I would maybe move that post-emerge app up just a little bit, too, because we see a little bit of stress on the crop when we are trying to wait. Ah, let's just wait till stuff's really big and I can barely get through. Uh, I don't like that. You just, you're in that critical time for developing the ear. I, I'd prefer to get stuff done a little bit earlier, like by V6 for sure. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, we're just finishing up the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop and taking questions from the audience. We'll be right back. Pentair Hypro Ultra Low Drift Nozzles are your ideal choice for the Enlist E3 herbicide system. With coverage comparable to flat fans and with 90% less drift, ULD nozzles meet all required standards for Enlist applications and provide optimal performance of contact herbicides. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. 
Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels in variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases a seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. When it comes to effective herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. They've been bringing growers trusted brands like Burnmaster, Scorch, and Spitfire for decades, made right here in the USA. What's your favorite New Farm brand? Email it to turnuptheburn at newfarm.com and you'll be entered to win a monthly $1,000 product giveaway. In these unprecedented times, you're facing unprecedented pressure. New Farm's here to help. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, if you were online or if you happen to have been somebody in person here at the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop, really hope you enjoyed that today. Had a lot of great questions come up and we couldn't get to all of them. So I know we've got a number of those questions that have been coming in online that we're going to get to. But we've got some questions here from our live audience. Let's get back to that. As Steve from Northwest Iowa. <clears throat> We'd like to lower our pHs. We got some pHs from 7.5 to 7.8 and some soils that maybe are 25 CEC or higher. Uh, what, uh, how much ammonium, I mean, how much uh, elemental sulfur should I use to uh, uh, lower that and should I work it in? Uh, okay, so first question, do you, do you have this all well tiled? Is it well drained? Yes, it is. Okay. That's the most important thing before you use elemental sulfur because otherwise it can turn to hydrogen sulfide in a poorly drained soil. So your soil will smell like rotten eggs if you have poor drainage. All right. I just want to throw something out. So today at the Soybean Agronomy Workshop, we were talking about some of what we call the first step plots at our, at our Ag PhD field day site. And a few years back, we had David Hula try something. And I, I love some of these guys and just the way they go about their business. And David wanted to overdo elemental sulfur just to see where that end point was rather than, well, I'll try 50 pounds this year and next year I'll try 100 and so forth. Nah, he said, let's just way overdo it and let's figure out if this is going to actually work or not. So he put a thousand pounds to the acre out in a plot at the field day site. And you know, what a great place to try things out because Brian had to pay for the fertilizer and David got to learn from that. So that's pretty cool. And, and we all get to learn from it because what we found and and Glenn could speak to this too. We had a pH that was like in the mid sevens and he took it to a 5.1 by July, throwing that thousand pounds of elemental out. 
I think David Hewlett was the happiest guy at our field day that year. He was so thrilled that he had done that. And we're like, wait a second, isn't 5-1 too low? Oh, yeah, it's definitely too low. I don't want to go that far. But now I know that there is an amount of elemental sulfur I can put out that in one year I can change things. And, yes, maybe it's not economical to throw a 1,000 pounds of elemental sulfur out, but you know what? Uh, now that pH is down, and where are we back up to, Glenn, on that pH? Sixes? Well, yeah, no, don't know. I mean, it was during the, the season where we were 5-1, and then we it, in the fall when we took and put it up, you know, when we took and tilled the ground up and did everything with that, we went right back to a 5-8. But we've moved the pH down in that soil into the mid-sixes all the way down to 18 inches. We're going to take another sample this spring just to make sure, you know, I mean, because it was a long-term thing to see, is it going to keep it down there? Okay, so let's answer his question here. And I pulled a slide up for our in-person or our live stream viewer so you can see why elemental sulfur lowers pH. But here, here are the key things I tell you, Steve. Number one, make sure you're investing your dollars wisely in all the nutrients that you need to raise that great crop. Uh, in, in other words, what I'm saying is, uh, if you aren't looking at the P and the K and the uh, all the different micronutrients, you're not going to get the kind of yield that you're after, and that's our end goal. Because we've been able to show now, you can still have some really good yields, even in a 7.578 pH. If you want to use some elemental sulfur, heavy soil, we're probably going to tell you uh, maybe a couple hundred pounds, something like that. Don't get super carried away. We don't want to lower that pH way down. We just want to get started with it. And even if it doesn't lower your pH down a lot, you're going to get benefit from this year or benefit in this year by, by using that elemental sulfur because it will start to lower that pH. But the other thing about that is when you're picking out that elemental sulfur, make sure, and we've got that right on that slide there, make sure you're getting something that's got a very fine particle size. Just like when you're going to purchase lime, uh, get a very fine particle size. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. I'm going to call my fertilizer dealer, and he's going to go, I don't know how it is. I, I, this is just the stuff we sell. So what I tell you to do is find maybe two or three or four sources of elemental sulfur. Just get a little sample of each. Put a, This is what we do. Put it in a jar of water and then shake it up. Come back the next day, shake it up. Come back the next day, shake it up. We've got some that's in our office over here at Baltic that we've had for two years. Two years. You can still shake it today, and it sounds like rocks in there. Okay, now do you think that came available? Not a chance in the world. And that was in pure water. So there's a big-time difference in elemental sulfur products. If you bought that product that we've got sitting in our office, I don't know how long it would take you, 10 years for it to break down, and you go, well, elemental sulfur doesn't pay. Well, of course it doesn't. It never broke down. So that's the, the number one issue. you got to make sure it's a very fine particle size, just the same thing as when you buy lime. Yeah, so I would say this. I, I would take a small area and try some different rates and just see because nobody can yep. really tell you exactly how much I'm going to need to get to my desired pH. So, yeah, maybe you take a 500-pound rate and you say, all right, I'm going to do a 500-pound rate and I'm going to do one pass doing... You no, know, don't, do, don't do that because no. it's, it's, it, it's not so, going to pay. It's not going to pay. It's too many dollars. That's the problem with elemental sulfur. It costs like 400 bucks a ton. So you, you go, oh, 500, 500 pounds? Well, that's $100 an acre. You're yeah. not going to recover $100 an acre. Do it on you, a couple acres. Well, that's fine if you want to try that, but I'm just telling you right now, the odds of that paying are not super high. So what we are typically doing on our farm is above 6.5 pH, every one-tenth of a point in pH, 
we're putting on 15 more pounds of elemental sulfur. Okay. So in other words, if we're a full point higher, that gets to a 7.5. Now we're putting on, uh, what would that be? 135 or 150 pounds of elemental sulfur. That's what we're typically doing. So that's why I'd tell you, you know, if you're in that mid sevens, I'd try, you know, 150, 200 pounds, something like that. At least you didn't spend a fortune, but still that's expensive. You're talking 30 to $40 an acre just right there with that. Yep. And I'd take a couple acres and do 500 pounds. That's what I do now, or you could do it like what Brian did. He said, let's experiment on some, some of Darren's ground. Let's way overdo it. And then he's going to have to buy lime to fix it. Cause we took the pH down too much. Don't do that. Unless you can, unless you have a brother that you can throw it on his ground like that. But uh, I would say just try a little bit. And, and here's the whole point with that large rate. I get it that it's not economical. That's fine. I don't care about that. I just want to know, is there a ridiculously high rate that's actually going to do the job? Because if I knew right now, Darren, you could put two tons on and it won't change a thing. I'd rather find out up front than I'm throwing out $30, $40 every year on every acre for a long time and say, I don't know if I'm seeing a difference or not. And I would also leave a check strip with whatever you do so you can kind of compare and put it on some ground that doesn't flood. We did a big lime study and we left a check strip, but we put it on ground that flooded. And what happened when the floodwaters receded? We saw lime all over the field. Okay, well, that wasn't a good spot for a yeah, trial. Yeah, we did the same thing with potash. It's like, yeah, that, oh, that was dumb. We can't do experiments on the river bottom anymore. All right, uh, next question. Brandon from Minnesota. I just have a question on uh, corn herbicide and timing. And our, for your guys' area, are you finding better ROI at tassel? Or would it be like V5? Oh, you mean fungicide? fungicide? Yeah. Or what did I say? <laughs> you said oh, herbicide. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't wait until tassel I wouldn't wait with herbicide. Tassel. Yeah, yeah. You're going to make this an easy question for us, Brandon. <laughs> I like that. Uh, well, okay, with the fungicides. So will you, get, will you get it to pay? Now, there's a lot of things that, that come into play here. Are you going to have disease pressure? Is this corn on corn? Do you have a susceptible hybrid? You know, that kind of thing. So there, there are some variables in the equation. But across the farm, the nice thing about that early application is you can spray it with your ground rig, you can throw it in with the pass you're already making and save a trip and all that. I get that. Uh, the tasseling time, yeah, for a lot of guys, it's I got to hire a plane. Uh, it's later in the season. We might be dry. We might not have a disease problem. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's more ifs about that. But what we're seeing more of, and, and earlier this week on Ag PhD Radio, uh, we had Josh Miller on from BSF, and he said there's... He's their top, this, BSF's top fungicide guy. He spread, said spray when the corn's five feet tall. Yeah, he said we've got this new application timing called five foot tall. Five foot tall, a lot of ground rigs can still make it through the field, so you could potentially do it yourself. And he said at that point, you've got the ear leaf out, so you can get coverage on that ear leaf. And if you can protect the ear leaf, that's where most of your yield gain is going to come from. So kind of like the flag leaf on wheat, if you can protect that ear leaf, that oh, might be a shot. So oh. it's something to think about, but you have to be cautious there because there's a lot of things happening with ear determination. You don't want to have surfactants in and that kind of stuff. So, But a lot of times if you can combine a trip with a herbicide and you're only going to use a half rate of fungicide because the plant's small, ROI is pretty decent, we found in our geography. We with just Unless it's a wet year, uh, the tassel doesn't usually pay in our geography because we don't have enough harmful diseases. All right, we got to go to break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, 
or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. Agroliquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your Burndown. It's about time. Applied at Planning, new Zyway 3D fungicide from FMC delivers foliar disease protection from planting to harvest. Active ingredient Flutriafol moves from the soil through the corn as it grows for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. For season-long protection, choose first-of-its-kind Enfuro Zyway 3D fungicide. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting live from the Morton Center in Baltic, South Dakota, following the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. We'll get back to our live questions from our audience right now. John from South Dakota. We grow non-GMO soybeans, and we're looking to get additional premiums for high-protein beans. Yep. What is some of the things that we need to look at for raising our protein levels on our soybeans? You know, that's a great question because here's the challenge with U.S. agriculture right now worldwide is our soybeans that we're selling on a global market may not be the highest protein beans available around the world. And I think about this with American farmers, when we put a challenge in front of us in our capitalist society, if there's a dollar incentive, exactly. we're going to go get it. Well, we haven't been paid for a protein premium before. 
Uh, in fact, I was just talking with Glenn here uh, in the last few days, and there was a farmer that we work with. That then this is switching gears a little bit. This is corn, but the elevator called him when he was hauling in his corn, and he said, "My goodness, what corn did you plant? You got 62 pound test weight corn you're bringing in." And I said, "That's awesome. What did he get for a premium? Nothing." And you know, you think about that. If you if you're raising soybeans that are two or three percent higher in protein than other soybeans, there should be a premium there. That's worth more. That that should be excellent. But what happens? No, we're paid by the pound. Okay. So, so what do we do? We raise more pounds. So we haven't focused on that. All right. So I, all I can tell you is there is some difference in varieties. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing is nobody really has a whole bunch of research on, oh, how do I increase this protein level very well? In wheat, we do because wheat, that is, there, there is a reward. And the answer in wheat is one thing. It's late season nitrogen. So I have to assume that in soybeans, we're going to see some of the same thing. It's availability of late season nitrogen. And so we talked about uh, earlier today how late season nitrogen doesn't really pay for yield in soybeans unless you've got lighter soil or are going for higher yield levels. But we haven't even run the tests. Uh, so, you know, we were showing you some data here, uh, but we didn't have, well, what was the protein content of that? I don't know. So we'd have to start doing some work. But, I mean, do you have anything? Is there anything the breeders are talking about? Any, anything? Nope, there's a little bit of difference between varieties. That's right. about it. Glenn, what, right. what have you seen on that, too? Well, and the only thing and I, where I would say is, remember, Brian, a couple of years ago when we were trying to do some stuff, we were taking better test weight corn? Yep. And we were just showing nutrient value? Yep. But we never showed protein value. But the argument at that time was, is the, the BT corn, smart stack corn, you're not going to have better nutrient value. Well, we knew where things were in the grain bins and that, so we just went, all right, let's go pull this, and completely opposite. It comes, I think fertility levels are certainly going to change that, so that would certainly help, but we just didn't look at protein at well, that we, point. Well, we did in corn, though, this year yep. for the first time, really, to take an extensive look in that, and we did see quite a bit of difference between the hybrids. Well, that was silage, yeah. though. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. But the other thing, to Darren's point, when we've been looking at hybrids, and John, you know this, too. Um, they're going for yield. Every company out there is trying to push yield. And sometimes test weight is one of the things that becomes just average. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to we have to get the, you know, our, our fertility levels up so that we can get the nutrient level up to get that test weight back because the grower well, that we're working with, that's what he, I mean, he's got a good hybrid that's got fairly good test weight. But they're not claiming 62 and a half pounds. But see, you bring that back to the wheat discussion. What we usually see is in the good yielding wheat years, that's when the protein level is less because there just flat out was not enough fertility to handle yep. both yield and protein. And that's where you got to have yep. more of that. And that's where those, those stream bar timings and you get it right on the awnings yep. and the kernel in that to get a, a nice, just small little pinch of of nitrogen there that's actually brought protein levels yep. up. So we've been talking for almost five minutes, John, and we don't have an answer to your question. <laughs> so that's what it comes down to. Uh, we, we really should start doing some research on that. That would be a good idea. I mean, there's some simple things just like we do in wheat and try that out and see. And, and you know, that's the other thing too. For I mean, if, it, if I was you, what I would do is I would test my varieties. And then in each variety that I'm testing, I would try some I'm going to call it mid-season application of nitrogen, 50 or 100 pounds of nitrogen, just dribbled on the row, hope, or you know, in between the rows, hope 
hopefully you get some rain in the next few days, get it down into the ground and go from there and see if that boosts what, your protein. Just out of if curiosity, I was do it, that's what, I'd do. what kind of protein premiums could there be? They're offering it, but we haven't gotten any. So, uh, how, but how much could? Are we talking fifty cents or quarter uh, or what? Yeah, I think it's it's a quarter or more. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and ours have been substantially below those premium levels. Albeit there is some neighbors that have got some protein premiums. Sure. And there's been some talk about elevation, and uh, you know I. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that means, other than you know beans do not like their feet wet, and that's correct. And but last year, where we saw the best yields was where the beans might normally get their feet wet because we were so we're dry in late in the year. Sure. Yep. Uh, well, th but, it's going to be interesting. There are a lot of products out on the market now. Some of these natural type products that have different amino acids in them as well. That could help. Building but, blocks for the proteins. That might be an interesting thing. Yeah, but to look here's the thing. Too. Let's say you're getting 50 bushel beans, and let's say it is a quarter. That's twelve dollars and fifty cents. You can't afford to do much for twelve dollars and fifty cents. You sure as heck can't make a separate application and spend money well, on something. You'd come out money behind. It's been one of those so. things too with some of the different oil content beans that are out on the market today. They just seem to be short-lived products because the producer or the processors never want to pay enough premium exactly. to incentivize the farmer to do it. And yep. there's oftentimes either a yield penalty or additional management steps that cost money, and we just haven't been able to turn that corner. So I, I don't know. Going forward, I really feel like this next generation of United States farmers is going to have to address this protein issue in soybeans. Only and I think, if we get paid. And, and I think that it's only – well – and if there's a premium on the world market, and if there is, and it's, hey, your, your beans are 22% we'll protein, we need 25, well, all right, I guess we better get there. All right. You know, oh, when, when Asia comes into our market and their demands for tofu and, and yep. those kind of things and soy oil for uh, uh, soy sauce, and, and that's where a lot of this high-protein soybeans is going, and... Uh, I, I think if if we could start producing that to where we start meeting some of their demand, I think the, the premiums would be greater yet. Yep. All right, uh, let's get to our next question here. Caleb from Wisconsin. Um, so that guy with 62-pound corn, have you been able to identify what? Well, what, we've, we've what raised plenty that? of 60-plus-pound corn. So, uh, I mean, the, the Glenn, big... Glenn could speak more to that. Maybe he'll well, talk off the mic a little bit to you uh, after this question. But uh, as far as management practices to get there, one of the factors there was hybrid. He picked a hybrid that I don't know if I don't know if we know of a hybrid with heavier test weight corn than that. So that was certainly a big factor in it. That and and like Glenn had mentioned before too, a lot of these high yielding racehorse kind of hybrids now, there's a bunch of them that just don't have the test weight. And it's one of the things that unfortunately we see breeders give up in this pursuit of super high yield is they're giving up grain quality. And I know we've seen that in some of the biggest name brands around the world that they've got some products that the grain quality just isn't what it used to be anymore. And man, that company used to be known for delivering this excellent grain quality. They got more yield there, but it, it's missing that piece. So it, it seems to be one of those things that you have to end up choosing. You can't really pick, well, I want 
all of these 10 things in this hybrid. Good luck finding that one. When you do, it's one that will probably last for 10 years. Okay, so hybrid makes some difference. Other than that, it's the same kind of stuff we talked about today with soybeans. It's drainage and it's fertility primarily. And fertility is enormous. Uh, so like for our dad before well, he retired, and, and was cutting health. back. Yep, was, our dad was cutting back on P and K, and you could just see the test weights going down. So you've got to have really good levels of P and K, but then also look at your micronutrients, sulfur, nitrogen, everything. I mean, balance, not just, oh, I'm, I'm going to throw 500 pounds of nitrogen out there. It's balance of your nutrients, and you can do really good. All right. What a lot of the high-yield guys talk about is no dent to their corn, and you can get to that. You really can. All right. The, the last part of that is plant health. And if you've got a plant that stays green longer so you can keep feeding that kernel, that's a, that's a really good day, too. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that go into raising better quality grain and raising higher yields. We'll talk more about them and continue on with our radio show right after this. Stay tuned. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmyourway. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at OpenSkyHerbicide.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Acre to acre, year to year, generation to generation, nobody scrutinizes performance like you do. And acre to acre, year to year, generation to generation, the consistent performance of Vasgro brand soybeans helps to keep your profitability out in front, offering leading agronomic expertise and 100% exclusive genetics for strong yield potential. Ask your dealer how much further you can grow when Asgro leads the way. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Fill once, plant all day. 
The Thrive 3D application system from FMC is a revolutionary in-furrow crop protection platform that plants up to 480 acres between refills. The Thrive 3D application system mounts to most major planter brands and can be yours at no cost with the FMC Freedom Pass program. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting live from the Morton Center in Baltic, South Dakota, following the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. We're taking questions from our audience here. Also getting questions online as well, which, of course, you can always send questions in to radio at agphd.com. Let's take another question. Chris, Missouri, on pericarp damage in corn, what is your threshold for severe damage? Like, when do you draw the line, like, we're not going to plant this? Okay, so what we're talking about here is basically a cracked seed coat, and a lot of times we'll see more of that out on the ends of the ears. So like on a large round seed size where it's the butt of the ear. I know our dad, when we talked about what seed size is going to be the best, he always say, I don't want the big rounds. That's on the end of the ear, and that banged around on a machine, and if they didn't harvest it timely and it got a little dry and then it banged around, I got more shot of pericarp damage or or poor cold germ scores, those kinds of things. You know, but I don't, we haven't been able to prove that. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, there's not this industry uh, standard. What I think is interesting though, is that there are different seed testing labs working on a lot of different tests. If a test is repeatable, it's a lot easier to put some faith in it. And some of these are like a saturated cold germ test, not necessarily repeatable. You can run the same sample through three or four different labs and get wildly different numbers. I think if you see they're all low, that's a good indication that it's probably not good. Uh, with the pericarp thing, though, man, if you're not putting fertilizer in furrow, that's one thing that'll help you. Because what I see with the, the damaged pericarp is if you've got fertilizer in furrow like 1034-0, you have more injury on those seeds. So it's not like that seed isn't going to grow. It's just much more susceptible to getting dinged, especially with fertilizer. So that would be my thought is, you know what, I'm putting a lot of fertilizer in my furrow. I'm going to be really concerned about that. I'm not putting fertilizer in my furrow. I can throw it over in a 2 by 2 or use it in my strip till instead. I'm much less concerned about that particular one. All right. Uh, next question here comes online. I don't have, oh, it's from RT who says, have you ever heard of lodging problems associated with the use of prowl on corn or soybeans? Well, first of all, prowl is <laughs> going to hurt your corn. I'll promise you that. So don't ever use prowl on corn ever, ever, ever. Don't care what the situation is. Uh, prowl on soybeans. No, we have not seen any problems if the prowl is used early. Now, where we have seen this is if you lay the prowl on the soil surface, especially after planting, uh, and in fact, north of Interstate 80, it's not even labeled in the United States to use after planting, and this is the reason why. Because if you've got a solid layer of prowl on the soil surface, and just as that bean is starting to come out, you think about that bean and that little crook on the plant, uh, that hits that prowl, and right at that point, you get a big rain. Yes, we have seen stem damage. So it's not as much, I would call it, lodging problems as literally the plant's 
fall over when a big wind comes late in the season. So, yes, we've seen that. You've got to be careful about how you're using Prowl on soybeans. If you till it in, it's fine. If you spray it really early, it's fine. Even if you spray it ahead of planting, it's almost always fine. So there's, there's no real big issue there other than if you spray it, like I say, north of Interstate 80, off-label where you do it after planting. All right. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I've got, I've got oh, and so by many the way, of these questions. Prowl used to be cheap. And group 15s used to be expensive. And that's why some guys would try to slip the prowl in there on corn and hope they didn't ding things up too bad because they thought they could save this big chunk of money. Now, prowl is expensive and group 15s are cheap. So if you've just been doing the same thing for a number of years, you really do need to run the return on investment calculator on every input because a lot of these things have changed around quite a bit. Okay, this one, and I don't have the person who sent this in uh, from our live stream, says, planting soybeans green into standing rye cover crop, what would you suggest is the best chemical to burn down the rye but also kill any early emerged weeds post-plant application? I'll just tell you, in terms of killing standing rye, you need glyphosate. Right, so the second part of that question is, I know you're going to say glyphosate to kill the rye, but yep. that's going to miss some Roundup-resistant weeds that I've got. So probably a better way to say it is, what can I tank mix with, with Roundup when I'm burning down my rye and some early season broadleaf weeds? Yeah, and so we did have a slide during our presentation today showing as long as your cover crop is less than 18 inches tall, you can just throw your normal uh, residual herbicide in there, it's going to be fine. If your cover crop is taller than 18 inches, we're going to tell you go out a couple weeks in advance with the glyphosate, burn that rye down, then come back with your residual herbicide. So what would we use? Well, we're always going to recommend the three pre's. Uh, it is Prowl, Metribuzin, and, or Prowl or Trifluralin, Metribuzin, and uh, either Valor or Authority. But what did we just talk about with Prowl? Well, if it has to be after you've planted, and that's what he says, post-plant application, well, now Prowl is out. So if Prowl is out, now I'm going to use a Group 15. I'm going to use a Warrant, a Dual, a Zidua, something like that. So that's what I would do. Okay, uh, let's see, next one. Oh, this is just a comment. Jared says, there is an option to get up to $2.40 premium for high-protein soybeans where I'm at. Well, two forty sounds much more inviting than twenty-five cents. Twenty-five cents. Well, I, now I the know. question that I've got is: is is two of the dollars towards just being non-GMO? I don't know, but if it is all a protein premium, yeah, true. Yeah, all of a sudden you've got some money there. That gosh, fifty bushel beans, you've got over a hundred bucks an acre. That's that's awesome. Okay, uh, this is Adam in Virginia. He says, just wanted to say thanks for always sharing your knowledge with us farmers. I farm in Virginia on what y'all would call sand. Our CEC is from 4 to 11. I've been using chicken litter the last few years, and it's really helped to build our P&K. Uh, my awesome. question is, on a soil with CEC of 5, how many pounds of potassium do you think our soils can retain in an average year based on it leaching out? We usually get around 55 inches of rainfall in a year. I broke the 80 bushel average this year on some farms and wow. want to build K in the soil but haven't been able to figure out how much I can apply and retain to build based on soil structure. What are your thoughts? Wow, great job, Adam. 80-plus bushel beans is awesome no matter where you're at. We're, we're super happy for you. That's really cool. Now, as to how much K you can hold in the ground, we don't know the answer to that. And I, I look at other nutrients like boron, for example. I know in that kind of soil, 
a lot of guys will say, man, we just can't get boron to stick around. In fact, some folks that we talk to don't even test for boron because they say, what's the point? We know we're going to have to put it on every Yeah, but year. potassium doesn't leach as easily as boron. I would say, what are you going to be able to hold? Maybe 100 pounds. Yeah, and Beyond especially that, as you're doing all this manure know, and if you have any access to compost as well, if you can start right. to build organic matter, and it's a lot easier said than done if you've got a 5 CEC, if you've got a 10 or 11 Oh, that's a little bit easier. If you can build organic matter, that's where you're going to hold some of these things that might yep. leach out. So I'd keep focusing on what can I do to increase organic matter. And in your area with your length of growing conditions, I would think cover crops would come into play in that and reduce tillage. That'd be my thought. Yep. But here's the next thing. You don't have to necessarily build potassium. Uh, it, you know, with that light soil and all the rain you have, it's going to move in the soil fairly well. So what I'm saying is you can put a bunch on right before you plant, and then you can put some on mid-season. There, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of people that are doing that in really high-yielding soybeans already anyway. Yeah, you just have to be careful because the potassium you put on in-season, we've tried I don't know how many different solutions of potassium that, that uh, Glenn has put on in our plots here, and almost all of them have burned the heck out of the crop. Uh, I know sure. Well, wait, you're been... talking about foliar. Yep. Yes. Yep. I'm Putting talking about, in-season. and I'm talking about on the you're ground. You're talking about a wide drop. Yes. Yeah. You could wide drop a lot more. You have a lot more options <laughs> in a wide drop. I'll give you that. Yep. Uh, let's see. I was, I, I know I had another question on potassium. See, this is here the challenge, Brian. That, we get so many questions. They just keep I'm coming just in. To... <laughs> you try to hit, okay, here's one that just came and then you go back and then it's like, oh no, you got to keep scrolling. Yep. Okay. So I'll just ask this one. This one comes from Jeff. He says, I know you guys use dry fertilizer and strip till. Have you tried using liquid instead? I am concerned about the salt load of the dry fertilizer. If you use liquid in strip till, is there any concern with long-term fertility? Um, I, I would say you can certainly use liquid. It's just liquid's more expensive, but liquid is also available really fast. So it just kind of depends on what you're looking for. And are we concerned about the salt load? In strip-till, we usually aren't because we have soil separating our fertilizer from our seed. So we don't typically get that worried about that salt load, but yes, you could certainly overdo it. Years ago, we, we tried manure in strips, and we found that, hey, at a certain level, our yield started going down, and it was because of the salt load. Now, granted, there's more salt in the manure, but yeah, the point is we always have to be at least a little bit concerned. Yeah, and... Oh, and liquid works fine if you want to go that way. All right, we'll get back to more of your questions right after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker-treated nitrogen. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. 
because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. Agroliquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We are just wrapping up the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. So got soybeans on the mind here, but certainly are taking any agronomic questions that we get from our audience here. Also, uh, Brian's trying to make sure we get all or as many as we can. As many as the, we can. The online questions answered. I know after the corn agronomy workshop, we had to print out every question that came in, just double check. Did we get that one answered or not? And, and so we spent the next day or two on Ag PhD radio, making sure we had all those done. Yep. So if we don't get to your question today, we will get it covered hopefully tomorrow during our radio show. All right. This one comes in from Shane. He says with your three pre suggestions, what is the residual with that mix? And then along with that, how much rain is needed for that mix to work? Well, boy, I love this. I saw a study, uh, from this past year about how much rain does it really take to make things work. And I thought it was quite interesting because at a half an inch of rain, I think they got 85 or 90% control. At an inch and a half of rain, it was like 95% control. And at two or two and a half inches, it was finally 100% control. And you think about that because I see a lot of these ads and I'm sure everybody listening today, same way, you can think of the chemical company and their ad comes on. Yep, we need an inch of rain to make everything work. The next ad that you see is their competitor. We only need a half inch of rain to make things work. And then the next one that comes on, boy, it just needs to look like it's going to rain and our stuff works. You know, it's just going to keep getting better. That's it's all like, nonsense. Yeah, it's like right. fish stories. You know, how big was the fish you caught? Well, let me see how big yours was first. Mine's going to be a few inches longer. But, you know, when you think about this, it takes moisture to get it to work. If there's moisture already in the soil, 
it's going to take less moisture to make things work. Less if rainfall to make it work. If your yes. soil is bone dry, it's going to take more rainfall to make things work. So I can't tell you that. I don't know what it's like. And then also, we showed a study from Iowa State earlier that said it took 2.7 inches of rain to fully get all the herbicide off the cornstalk residue. Yep. So how much residue have you got out there too? That That's going to vary. So I would just say this. If you're worried about it, that, you know, we don't get much rain and I need rain to make things work, I would spray things earlier. And in some areas, there are guys that like to put things out in the fall just to make sure at least they're going to get snow melt on to get it to work. Some guys will do some light tillage. That reduces the amount of rain it takes to get things to work. Others will just say, well, I'm going to go out a couple of weeks ahead of planting to buy myself more time. Okay, so today at our workshop, several times I said we have had the driest six-month period in the state of South Dakota history, okay, the driest ever, and that's following two years of the wettest ever. So when we are absolutely bone dry, the water table's down at 10 feet in the ground, there's no moisture, has, has been almost no moisture since July 5th, that's going to change things. So you're going to need a little bit more rainfall to get any herbicide to work, number one. And number two, I want you to think about if you've got a heavy soil and you're going to put nitrogen on, are you going to now put it all on up front or should you, like in those wet years, save some for use at side dress. Well, for me, for our heavy ground, we're going to put all the nitrogen on up front for 250 bushel corn because I'm so worried that we aren't going to have enough moisture to get that nitrogen down where I need it and activated during the middle of the growing season. But we'll see. I could be dead wrong. But all I'm saying is things are a little different depending on your area and how much moisture there is. So in, in terms of the three pre-suggestions, what's the residual uh, trifluralin and prowl last a really long time, season long. Authority definitely lasts season long. And then some valor lasts quite a while, at least midsummer, if not even longer than that. The metribuzin is the only thing where it's rain sensitive, just like atrazine. Okay, so think about met metribuzin and atrazine the same way. They are in the same chemical family. The more rain you have, the more they're going to leach out. Okay, so if we have lots and lots of rain, metribuzin might only last a month. If we don't have a lot of rain, there will be some metribuzin there most of the summer. All right, next one is from John. He says, in an iron deficiency chlorosis situation, what population would you recommend for soybean planting? I typically plant at 125,000. I would go way higher than that. I'd probably be 175,000 in the worst spots of IDC. Not everywhere, just in those bad spots. What do you think, Darren? I was thinking a 50% boost in population. I was thinking 180. Yep. All right. Uh, That's my feeling, but I know some guys that will go over 200 in those spots. Yep. I also know some guys that will turn around with the planter and split the rows in those spots Yep. and try to try to address it that way. There's a lot of different ways to go. The other comment, Brian, that we get a lot of times is, hey, through the middle of my IDC spot where my beans are yellow, I've got two green stripes through there where my wheel tracks were. What's going on with that? And a lot of times what we see, and this is not always the case, but a lot of times we've got compaction as we drove through those spots. And what happened with the compaction is we forced out uh, those air pockets and the, the pockets that are holding nitrates. We've got a lot of the iron deficiency chlorosis situations. We've got high levels of nitrates. And many times that wheel track compaction will actually end up looking green right around it. Now, am I saying compact those areas? No, I'm not. So if you compact the whole area, it's not going to work either. But yeah, a lot of times 
that compaction is kind of interesting how those strips stay green. Also, I had a farmer that we talk about drainage all the time. And if you've got high pH and poorly drained ground, drainage is going to help you. It's just going to take a while on its own to fix that pH problem. But I had a farmer in southeast South Dakota that he invited me out to his farm and uh, we were walking and we come over this hill and there's this little dip and it's poorly drained. It had no place to go. It was it was the bowl and the bowl was dead except for one strip of green living plants down the middle. And he said, well, I don't know if you can guess what happened here, Darren. And I'm like, well, it looks like you had a drown out spot here and everything died. He goes, yep. But what about that one strip? There was literally one row of beans down the middle of this that looked like nothing had happened to it. And I said, man, if I didn't know any better, Ron, I would say you have a drain tile line there. He goes, that's right. And I said, how come it only saved one row? He goes, I don't know. It must be worst case scenario, but the one row looked like it was almost untouched. It was just amazing right over where that tile line was. He should have just put some laterals in there. Okay, so well, yesterday. That was on the, the first one he had ever put in, so yep. he was pretty happy about that. Yesterday on our radio show, we were talking about soil pH. And back a few years ago, we did one-inch soil tests going down in no-till, conventional till, and strip-till ground. And what we this, found this is, is a fun job that if you're just if you had nothing to do on a weekend, just so, painstakingly go out and try and get enough of a soil sample from only one inch deep, not any deeper, and then only that one to okay. two inch depth. That's, so, it's it's tough. Okay, so what we found is the lowest pH was at six to seven inches deep in no till, in strip till, and in conventional till. Why is that? What do you think? It's because the roots are there. That's where the majority of roots are. And what do roots do? They kick out acids. So when you say, well, why do I need to bump my population in iron deficiency chlorosis ground? Because you want more plants, because you will have more acid in the soil, and that will neutralize this impact of IDC, because IDC is only high pH. Okay. Uh, next question. Josh asks, is heads up available as a dry powder so that can, it can be applied at planting, or does my seed dealer have to apply it? How, how have you used that, Glenn, and what formulations have you got yes, to work with? Yes, uh, your seed dealers basically got to apply it. There is no powder that you can dump on uh, in the planter. Uh, let's see, Conrad says, thank you guys for talking about tying yield information back to grid soil samples. I've been doing it on my farm uh, on many fields since your corn agronomy workshop, and the data I've been able to get is very eye-opening. Uh, yes, we would totally agree with that. Uh, let's see. Next one. Uh, this is the fun part of the radio show where Brian scrolls through his phone. Good grief. Yeah, I just, sorry. <laughs> this is I, why this is not a TV so, show, I guess. I, I have so many. <laughs> that makes for okay. terrible TV. Okay, this is John from Indiana. He says, in soybean production, would you advise K to be spoon-fed like nitrogen in corn, in pivot, or dry land? So this is kind of, I'm sure, following up on what we were just talking about with applying some potassium later. And I, I would just say, like here on our ground where we're non-irrigated and we have heavy ground and our ground is frozen five months out of the year, don't even think about spoon-feeding potassium. No way, never going to work. We don't have enough rain and our soil's too heavy, the, the potassium doesn't move. But if I had light soil and I had irrigation, absolutely I would be looking at that. And I especially would if I was down south where my ground never freezes because now you know that stuff's going to move down even further. 
So then, uh, yeah, that's where spoon feeding, applying some in season absolutely makes sense. Well, okay, I, so I, I uh, yeah, I apologize to all the questions we didn't get to. We'll try to get to those tomorrow. Go ahead. I love that we have a soybean agronomy workshop, and a lot of the talk ends up being around fertility. Because I know growing up, it would have been all about weed control. What can we do with weed control? Uh, but here, we're seeing what a difference we can make with fertility. Really appreciate everyone that came to our meeting today in person. Uh, that was really fun to, to be around a, a group of people again. And also really appreciate everybody who's tuning in online. And thanks to you for listening to our radio show today. Please join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.